James chapter 2, James chapter 2. Read along with me. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the way that you work through James, that in this letter he does not pull any punches, but he gets straight to the root of our sin. And here he calls us out on our sin of favoritism. Lord, uh, please help us to listen. Please open our hearts, our ears, our mind to receive your word. And please be gracious to work through me to preach your word to your people for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We've all been there before. We've all experienced it. We have witnessed others who have been the sad victims of it, while we have also seen those who have been the undeserved recipients of it. We have seen it in our workplace. We have seen it in school, on sports teams, in the clubs and organizations we have been a part of, some of us have even experienced it in our own families. And unfortunately, we have seen it in nearly every local church we have been in. Favoritism, or as James puts it, showing partiality. Most of us have experienced it, the double standard. We have personally known a golden boy or a golden, golden girl who could never do anything wrong. And we have seen the whipping boy or the scapegoat who is blamed for everything. We have all felt pity for the person who seemed to be the butt of every joke, the one who was the easy target, the weakest, least attractive, least gifted, most nerdy, or worst performer in the group, the one who could never catch a break and was either directly or indirectly humiliated by the rest. And we have seen those who were protected, taken care of, sought after, those who got the prime positions, the high-profile assignments, the constant accolades, quick promotions, who always seem to be on the fast track. Sadly, most of us know the evil of favoritism far too well, either as the beneficiaries, the forsaken, or the observant bystander who witnesses it taking place. 
And we can clearly see this sin pointed out to us by James in his illustration of the rich man and the poor man in the church. However, James does not write to confront one particular church, but to point out the potential for this sin in every church. If you look at the beginning of his letter and his salutation, he writes, he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning to those Jewish believers in the early church who had been dispersed outside of Israel due to the persecution, which in the early days of the church essentially meant every local church body. That also included the Gentiles that were a part of the church, but for the most part, it was the Jewish believers. Also, James warns us about favoritism in verse 1 and then uses an example of showing partiality towards a rich man over a poor man in verses 2 to 7. But he is not only concerned about favoritism in the context of the rich and the poor, but uses that as an example since it was the primary context of the sin of partiality in the early church. See, the early church suffered persecution and many believers lost homes, jobs, land, status, their inheritance, and were outcasts from their families for their faith. They were, for the most part, poor. And so if a rich man walked into the service, there was most likely a temptation to treat him well since he could really help out the congregation if he so pleased. But more than their wealth, the rich in the ancient world had power. Wealth and power usually go hand in hand, but in our day you could be relatively wealthy and not have that much power. In the ancient world it was different. Wealth usually meant land, uh, flocks, servants, vineyards, maybe ships, and definitely a certain level of political clout. So having a a rich man in your congregation could definitely ease some financial burdens, maybe provide some jobs to the unemployed, maybe ease some persecution with their status and connections in the community. The poor man, however, he doesn't have much to offer at all, at least in the worldly sense. He may have a lot to offer in the spiritual sense, however. So showing favoritism in this context between the rich and the poor was probably the most common and most evident. However, James also warns, about, warns us about jealousy and selfish ambition in the context of speaking and teaching in chapter 3, another context in which favoritism could arise. In chapter 4, he speaks of quarrels and conflicts over worldly desires and covetousness and warns about judging one another wrongly. Also, contexts in which favoritism and partiality are likely to occur. In fact, showing favoritism to others or judging with, with partiality is one of those sins which always accompanies other sins and can be found in many places. Throughout his letter, James addresses those common behaviors and sins within every church. And unfortunately, favoritism is as common in the church today as it was then. However, in his illustration of the rich man and the poor man, James paints this sin as something far more sinister than that which disrupts relationships and destroys unity in the church. This sin is much more devastating than the sting of rejection 
the public humiliation or the long-held bitterness from being overlooked and disenfranchised. In looking at this passage, I, I want you all to see the depth of this sin as we look at the descent into the sin of partiality in three phases. The desire, the distinguishing, and the diminishment. The desire, the distinguishing, and the diminishment. If we go back to chapter 1 and verses 14 to 18, we see that James describes the process of sin as that which begins in the heart with our desire. Read along with me, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Favoritism or partiality is no different. It begins in the heart with desire. See, the Bible talks a lot about our heart as the center of our being, as truly who we are. Jesus says, said that out of the heart the mouth speaks. We were created by God as worshipers. And the way we worship is with our heart. Beginning in our heart. And outwardly in our words and our actions. The things we say, the things we do. Before the fall, we had a perfect heart. We had God-honoring desires. We had righteous judgments. After the fall, our our heart was tainted with sin. It was corrupted so that um, as as Moses writes um, in Genesis 6-5, that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart was evil and wicked continually. Our heart is the center of our being. It is who we are. After conversion, our heart is, is made anew. God takes out that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And yet, at the same time, we still have sinful desires because there is a war within our heart. Our heart is alive in Christ and it is attuned to righteousness and we are slaves to righteousness. And yet, as Paul said... In Romans chapter 7, the good I want to do, I don't do. But the evil I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So the question is, what's the desire within the person's heart who commits the sin of partiality? What is that person desiring? the person who shows favoritism to others, what what are they desiring? Where is their heart? There are some diagnostic questions that biblical counselors use to discern the idols of one's heart. Uh, No one can truly know the heart, but we can ask questions and we can get them to speak, and as they speak, they will show what's in their heart. So there are some questions that we can ask as counselors to those to try to discern what's in their heart. What are their idols? What are their desires? Some of those questions are such as, what do I want that I don't have? 
What do I have that I don't want? What is the one thing in my life that if I could change would make me happy? What do I fear most? What do I love? All of these questions and others like them are intended to expose the reason for one's discontentment, their dissatisfaction. And by exposing their discontentment, we'll be able to expose the object of their desire, which they believe will please them, bring them fulfillment, and make them content. The desires of a discontented heart could be um, those things such as hope and fulfillment found in the things of this world, of money, of fame, of, of pleasure, of comfort, of security, of stuff. Perhaps um, the desire within the, the person's heart who commits partiality, perhaps it, it, it's, it's their desire that um, they want control. They, they, they don't trust God's sovereignty and his good providence in their circumstances, and so they seek control. They're preoccupied with their self and their situation and changing their circumstances for their own good. So they're always trying to figure out how to order things, how to um, influence other people or their, their circumstances for their own good because they're worried, they're fearful, they want control. And these desires of discontentment naturally lead a person to begin to evaluate their environment, their surroundings, the people, to begin to uh, make distinctions, judgments. How can they order things in a way so as to um, fulfill the desires of their heart, to um, rid themselves of their discontentment? As it pertains to James' illustration, perhaps it's, it's such for the man who's showing favoritism to the rich man over the poor man, perhaps it's such that the, the church isn't doing so well. Maybe, maybe he isn't doing so well. Maybe this rich man that comes in could really change his circumstances, his situation, the church's circumstances. Maybe that's the desire. Maybe that he has a discontentment with the church, and, and here comes this rich man, and he's the answer. He has money. He has political clout. He can, he can uh, bolster the church's finances and the budget. He can uh, ease the persecution and the suffering. That poor man, what does, what does he have to offer this church? He doesn't have anything to offer us. He's just going to be a drag on us. And so this desire leads to distinguishing. We read in verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, we can just stop right there, because verse 2 is, is simply a Distinctions. It's simply an evaluation. It's simply discerning these two men. Yet discerning with sinful desires and categorizing them. And we do this. 
We categorize all day long. We make judgments all day long, distinctions all day long. It's what we do. We categorize people according to obvious demographics. And simple categorizing or simple um, distinctions aren't inherently wrong. It's just an observation. We see obvious demographics of gender and age and ethnicity and dress, height, weight, body composition. We also categorize according to personalities, abilities, talents, spiritual gifts. We categorize according to status, position, and authority. We make these distinctions and almost on the fly, almost immediately. It's it's the worship function that God has given us, that God has made man in such a way that we make decisions. We, we make decisions, we evaluate. In fact, the, the definition of the term worship, worth skip, an old English term, actually means to evaluate worth, to ascribe worth, to ascribe value. We are constantly, all day long, ascribing value to person, places, things, situations. It's what we do. We can't get away from it. It's how we were created. We evaluate our surroundings and we make judgments. And originally that wasn't a bad thing because originally that function of the human being was intended so that we would see the creation, we would see how beautiful and how amazing it is and see ourselves and see our surroundings and see what God has made and evaluate it and say, God is great. And we will worship him. But because we have all fallen in sin, that human function of evaluating and judging and making distinctions is ordered by a sinful heart. And so we do so according to our desires and not to glorify God. And so we categorize people. We put people in positions, in boxes, in um, certain places. Now, we need to be careful here because what James is not saying is that there's no distinctions in the body or that we shouldn't make distinctions. He isn't saying that we can't have best friends or that our friends are to be different than us. He's not saying that we don't evaluate or rank others according to their abilities or their proficiencies. He's not saying that that we um, have to have certain friends or we have to be best friends with everybody. He's not telling us that um, we have to esteem everybody the same. James is not saying that we shouldn't rank others according to character or abilities or that we shouldn't show more honor to some than we do others. Paul says that those elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. Proverbs says that you shall honor the gray-haired. And uh, for the last couple years, I've been noticing a lot more gray hair, so I expect more honor. (laughs) But, But... we need to be very careful here because we make distinctions. We categorize. We automatically do that, and sometimes it's not wrong. But the point is, is 
What is our desire? Why are we doing that? In Leviticus, uh, it says, Leviticus 19 in God's law, it says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Jesus said in John 7, 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So as we think about how we are to evaluate one another in the body rightly and judge with righteous judgment, I want you to turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. And as you're turning there, um, just by way of background, the... Corinthian church was just full of chaos, rampant pride, disunity, misguided worship, full of sin and immorality. And yet, when I think of the Corinthian church and 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 the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I think of you know, one of my favorite verses in both of those letters is the introduction where Paul calls them saints. As messed up as they were, they were all saints. All the same status in Christ. And that's who we are. Read along with me. Verse 13, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We can see clearly in this passage that there is clear distinctions. There's clear distinctions, there's clear categorizing of the members of the body according to their gifting, according to their status. And and we can see in our own local body that there are distinctions among each member, and yet we are all one body. 
and no member is greater than another. In fact, those who seem to be the least, we are to show the greater honor. I'm always amazed at how God has brought people with uh, disabilities into the church. And sometimes people with great disabilities and diseases. And it's amazing how he uses those people who seem to have nothing to offer to the church. That they need caretakers and they need people to um, care for them. But if we think about it, they have a lot to offer to the church because they confront our selfishness. They give us opportunity to show compassion, to serve, to give. And where those people who are the least are shown compassion and are served and are welcomed, the body grows. And it it unites itself together in love. And this is how we are to act towards one another. We can make distinctions and judgments, but we don't show favoritism or partiality according to evil desires. Back to James chapter 2, verses 3. If you pay attention... To the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That underlying word for the pay attention, it means to to show special favor. um, To not only make a distinction, but to give special honor, um, favoritism, and grossly without, without even trying to hide it. And he says, in making distinctions, you become judges with evil thoughts. So we have this desire... We make distinctions, and our making distinctions causes us to judge one another and to treat others better than they should be treated and others worse than they should be treated. And in doing so, we become judges with evil intentions. So how, how, how do we judge? How do we become judges with evil thoughts? We judge according to our perceptions. You know, some of us walk around church or in organizations or our families or groups or in the public with an imaginary clipboard and we walk around we have our checklist on it and our checklist of standards and we walk around we went nope nope not good enough okay I'll take that yeah you're doing well okay and and we judge people and we measure everyone against our standard not God's and so we judge according to our desires what we want not what God wants We judge according to our high view of self, which sadly reveals a low view of God, as as if we can stand in the judgment seat, as if we know enough to accurately judge one another. And this is what Jesus was getting at in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter chapter 7, when he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. 
He's not saying that we don't make judgments, but in, in making judgments, we are to be careful that our standard is righteous and according to God's standard and not our own standard. Because he says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus is not telling us that we shouldn't judge. But he's saying to judge rightly, according to God's standards. And if we judge rightly, we will be too busy dealing with our own sin to dwell on the sins of others. But if we judge our fellow man according to our standards, we are actually usurping God by placing ourselves in his seat of judgment over man. So that we can place our fellow man below us. And this is what it means in becoming judges with evil intentions. We usurp the position of God and we place ourselves in the judgment seat. So the sin of favoritism, partiality, starts with the desires in man's heart, the sinful desires, and then it moves and it descends into the distinctions that he makes amongst the body and amongst his fellow man wrongly judging, becoming a judge with evil intentions, usurping God, and then finally, it moves into the diminishment. He actually diminishes his fellow man. James 2, 6, But you have dishonored the poor man, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, once again, we need to understand that what James is not saying, he is not condemning all rich people because later on he he speaks of Job in, in in a good manner. He He's... He's speaking more along the lines of of the rich and powerful, the ones who wield their power against the church, who are prideful. But more than that, he's showing that your distinctions are diminishing the poor man. And you view a person not according to their inherent worth as a person made in the image of God, but according to their possessions, according to their status, according to what they have to offer you. And so in doing so, you actually separate the person from their possessions. But even worse than that is that in in doing so, you're the person here, he's not only dishonoring the poor man, but he's dishonoring the rich man as well. Because he's not viewing him 
as a person made in the, created in the image of God, but he's viewing him for what he has to offer the church or what he has to offer him, how he can fulfill his desires, not as just another person with riches and clout, whether he's good or evil. I remember uh, one of the churches I was in, we, had, we would often have a guest speaker come in, and, and he happened to be uh, the chaplain for a major league uh, baseball team close by. And he would always have a handful of believers that are professional baseball players. And uh, he would minister to them, and then he'd have you know, a couple guys that he would be sharing the faith with, and uh, they would talk about their struggles and, and being new believers. And, and usually one of the struggles that these professional baseball players would have would be finding a good church. Because um, many of you might be like me. If a major league baseball player or football player walks in, you might not have a clue who he is. I would not know. <laughs> I would have no clue. But there would be somebody would know. And eventually the pastor would find out. And so these you know, major league baseball players who are true believers, new believers, coming to faith, trying to find a church, would come in and, and eventually the pastor would talk to them and eventually they would be saddened to hear the hints that would be dropped. You know, we're, we're glad to have you here. We're glad that you're part of this church. And, you know, we're, we've really been hurting lately and, and we really need to renovate the children's ministry and, you know, we could use a new bus and, you know... Um, our, our church is just, you know, we're, we're low. We're, we're just a simple church. And, you know, just drop in hints. They're separating the man from his possessions. They're dishonoring him. And some of you may be thinking, oh, yeah, I'm a poor Major League Baseball player, you know. But I mean, just imagine the temptation that a new believer in that context is um, exposed to. And they sincerely want to find a new church, and they get into a church, and all the people see is not the man, but their possessions. They have dishonored the rich man. So we, we when we show favorites and, and uh, show partiality, we not only dishonor the poor people, we dishonor the rich people. We dishonor both. Both sides of the spectrum in which we're judging. Both people, the person we show favoritism to and the person we disregard, we're dishonoring both of them. And we're defaming the image of God. And you see, this is the paradox of a partial faith. Or as James puts it, holding your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. That in doing so and being partial to others in the body, we are being grossly inconsistent with the Christian faith we profess. We make distinctions amongst others according to our sinful desires. We judge according to our standards rather than God's. And we diminish other believers and defame the image of God in which they were created. Worse yet, we dethrone God, who alone can judge the thoughts and intentions of man's heart. 
And we place ourselves in the seat of judgment over our fellow man. When if we were to hold to our faith with integrity, we would see God as he is. Holy, perfect, just, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, yet merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If we see God rightly, we'll view ourselves and our fellow man rightly. And we will be able to say, as David did, what is man that you are mindful of him? In fact, turn with me there to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Most commentators uh, believe that David wrote this psalm as a shepherd boy while he was leading and caring for the flock in the wilderness. And as he reflected upon the scenery around him and the starry sky above him, he wrote this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, when we see the greatness and the glory of God in the clear revelation of his creation and in his word, we should naturally see our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of mankind and the infinite gap between us and God. We should be like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he was brought up and he saw the vision of God and Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he uncovered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the whole house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. See, Isaiah saw God rightly 
David saw God rightly. And when Isaiah saw God rightly, he saw himself rightly as a sinner amongst sinners. And he said, who am I? Who am I to judge my fellow man? Who am I to stand before you, the Holy One of Israel? So my question to you tonight is, do you view God like this? Like David and Isaiah did? Do you see him as holy, holy, holy? Do you see him as perfect, righteous, and just? All-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. And if that is true for you, how do you view yourself and those around you? Do you see your own sinfulness as Isaiah did? Are you quick to repent like Isaiah did? Do you live a life of repentance? Or are you still holding on to some sense of inherent goodness, self-righteousness, or some list of good works, as if you have something to offer to God, as if you're better than other sinners? The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons, that he does not show partiality or take a bribe, but judges mankind according to his perfect standard and not the standard of man, which places every person under his just condemnation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received this gift? Do you have eternal life? If not, all you have to do is recognize your great need for it. Humble yourself before God. Repent from your sins and ask for his forgiveness. And that you may have eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus Christ came to save sinners, to humble himself, to take on human flesh, to live that perfect life that we could not live, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, it's, it's only by Christ's righteousness that we can be seen as righteous before God. And it's only by his sacrifice that our sins are atoned for and forgiven. And it's only in Christ that we can be united to God. And only in Christ that we find unity with one another in his body, the church. You see, when we view God rightly, we will then see ourselves rightly. And therefore be able to treat our fellow man rightly. Father, help us to see you as you are. Holy, holy, holy. Remind us of what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ. Who made away with all distinctions amongst men. And help us to view our fellow man as they really are and not to exalt ourselves above them, but to exalt you and to honor you and to glorify you and to live lives worthy of your gospel. Help us to love one another and help us to honor you in our interactions with one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.